Welcome to Island Baptist Church. Today's sermon is Daniel, Changing Your World. March uh, 2012, uh, Washington Times carried a story about a $3 million strip joint being put in on the southwest side of Chicago, which, you know, okay, want to tell us what's something we don't know. Well, here's something you don't know, is that it went in right next to a retirement home for Catholic nuns. And I mean right next door. Here's what the article said in the Washington Times. It says, on one side of the fence, there are women who have taken vows of poverty and chastity. On the other side of the fence, women who've taken vows of nudity and money at any price. And um, do you ever feel like you may be one of those nuns (laughs) in the world we live in? I mean, it seems like right next door, everywhere we go, uh, things are not the same. Uh, Definitely not the same. Not the same Southeast Texas small town I grew up in for sure and even even though I go back to that town even that town is not uh, what it was. 1996 is a pivotal year uh, in our nation for many reasons but among them one of the things that flew under the radar was the fact that uh, Gallup poll began for the first time asking uh, ever by the way asking Americans about their opinion about gay marriage. 1996, so that's 22 years ago. 22 years later, by the way, back then, 27% thought it ought to be, of of those polled, thought that gay marriage ought to be approved, ought to be recognized in the United States. Today, 22 years later, it's 60%, which, of course, that number doesn't surprise you. What will surprise you is that sociologists tell us that this um, poll indicates what they consider to be the sharpest societal attitudinal change ever recorded on any subject in our nation. Sharpest change of any poll ever. And that's where we live. Here's where we are. Uh, Here's the situation. Uh, We live in a culture that's spiraling down. Uh, We are not, I agree with, uh, people threw up their arms, you know, we talked about last week with um, President Obama saying we're not a Christian nation. so you think we are a Christian nation? You want to label what's going on Christian? I'm, I'm, I'm not willing to say it's Christian. We're going to call it Christian, and the whole rest of the world is going to see that and say, that's what Christianity is? Um, no, definitely not. So how are we supposed to engage a post-Christian culture um, that no longer shares our values, in fact, becoming increasingly uh, antagonistic, uh, hostile toward us? How do we influence a culture that's desperately trying to influence us? Where, where, where do we go in the Bible uh, to find an example of person or persons who lived in the midst of situations that spiraled down, and yet they, were, they kept their integrity? In fact, not only were they not influenced by the culture, they began to be influencers themselves. Where do we find that in the Scriptures? Well, there's a number of places we can go. Probably the best place is a book called Daniel, and that's where we are. We're starting leaving Ezekiel behind, again, making our way through the Old Testament, um, looking at the um, highlights, if you will, of the Old Testament. We've made our way all the way to the book of Daniel. If you would like to turn there, we're going to be in the book of Daniel for a while. Daniel's one of my favorite books for a number of reasons. It's got some really good uh, first grade Sunday school stories in it uh, that I have known since, since that time, probably before. And it's got some really, really deep stuff, uh, as powerful and as... Uh, um, enigmatic as anything you would find in Revelation. In fact, I would submit to you that understanding Daniel, in particular Daniel 9, is a key to Revelation. If you don't understand Daniel 9 correctly, uh, Revelation is, you, you're off on Revelation, I can tell you for sure. So we'll get to that. We'll see if we'll get to that. It may be too much for us. I don't know. We'll see. So turn to the Daniel, book of Daniel. 
In, B, in 609 BC, the Assyrians were the ruling empire of the world, but not for long. Uh, they formed a very hasty reliance with an original, what originally was their enemy, the, the Egyptians in the south, and now their vassals. They formed an alliance with the Egyptian king, Pharaoh Necho, and the Assyrian king formed alliances together in order to deal with a rising problem that were a threat to both of their empires. And this was a culture that was growing on the river, on the river of uh, uh, Euphrates called the Babylonian uh, kingdom. And so they hastily form this alliance, and Pharaoh Necho travels up to a place on the Euphrates River called Carchemish. And they join their forces together, and their collective forces, the Assyrians and the Egyptians, were twice the size of the Babylonian armies that met them. But it was such a resounding victory on behalf of the Babylonians that it's still among, uh, in the annals of war history, among the best. Uh, maneuvering and best, best battles that have ever been fought. And a key player in the battle was uh, the general, the lead general of the Babylonian army. He was a young man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar. That's the way you pronounce his name. We know him as Nebuchadnezzar. The son, he happened to be, the son of the king of Babylon. Now, the reason why he was in the battle and his dad was not because his dad fell ill. We'll come to find out not long after the battle, his dad dies and he becomes king, and he becomes this man that we know in the book of, of um, Daniel and other places in the Bible, this king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And he destroys the Assyrian Empire. Assyria never rises again. He marches south following the Egyptian army down south into Africa, but on his way he passes through a tiny country called Israel, and uh, among other things, conquers their capital city, Jerusalem. Uh, tears down part of their wall, carts off all the valuables he can possibly come up with, removes their king, places another king, a vassal king that would follow him and be obedient to him, at least supposedly, uh, in the place. Actually, it, belonged, it was his son, the, man's, the king's son who had been replaced. And he carts off the most valuable possessions of Jerusalem, which included people. Their lead men, their lead women, and among them, young men especially young men who he could use in the service of his government, which, by the way, had just become the most powerful nation in the world. Among these who were carted off were Daniel and his four, or his four, yeah, his four famous, three famous friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They brought down to Babylon. So we pick up the story in Daniel chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, it says, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, this is the king of Judah, right? Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem, besieged it, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, that's back to Mesopotamia, back to the Middle East, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God, and then the king ordered Ahashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family of the nobles. This is where Daniel comes from. He's of the line of David. Got royal blood uh, run through his veins. Used, it says, who no defect was found, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every brand of wisdom, Endowed with understanding, discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, and at the end of which they were to enter into the king's personal service. Now among them were from the sons of Judah, Daniel, 
Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel, he assigned Belteshazzar. By the way, Daniel means God is my king. Belteshazzar basically says, Bel is my king. He changes their names from godly names to pagan names. Uh, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego, and the three friends, the ones we only know of them by their, by their pagan names uh, anymore, because that's all they're known in the culture. By the way, Daniel was never called Daniel in that culture either. He was always called uh, Belshazzar, just, just for your information. So these friends, along with Daniel, are carted off, and so we need to, first of all, before we can understand and learn from their experience here, we need to first understand the kind of things that they were subjected to. So uh, the experience that they're having will help us understand better how we can relate to them and maybe in our culture where we find ourselves surrounded uh, with uh, paganism. So first of all, we understand they're captives uh, against their will. Most likely they lost their moms and dads in that process. Uh, They certainly were going to be leaving their home city and their home country never to see it again. Living more than a thousand miles away, they never returned. Uh, Never saw their parents again, never saw their hometown again, their home country, their families, their friends, never saw any of them again. So they're they're victims of human trafficking. Human trafficking is nothing new. You know, we talk about that like it's something new on the horizon. Guys, we have always done that to each other. Uh, If it's not Mexico, it's been Africa, it's been the United States. We've always trafficked in human lives. And unfortunately, because we're a bunch of uh, horrible sinners, and that's the reason why we've done these kind of things, well, that's what they were. And they were subjected to this. They were also subjected to tremendous cultural shock. I don't know what your opinion is of Jerusalem. You need to go, by the way. We're going in a year. You need to go with us. And the first thing I did when I saw Jerusalem was, in my mind, I said, this place? This place? (laughs) There's nothing to the city of Jerusalem in the sense of what you observably are going to see. Even today, it's only a city of 800,000, which is smaller than Austin. So your whole Bible is written either from or about, in many ways, uh, about Jerusalem. Back in the day of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the city of Jerusalem was only about 40 or 50 acres. So it's, it's a rural city. Uh, the Jewish people were historically people of the land. They were farmers, they were sheep herders, they were goat herders, they were grape tenders. I mean, this is what they did. So I don't know what your opinion is. Or, sometimes we get these ideas that they're like us, and they were not like us. Uh, Jerusalem was a rural city, very small, uh, very few buildings of any kind of, uh, the only important building, I guess we could say, really was the temple, and even that was not significant compared to other temples that were built uh, during that day, especially including Babylon. So very rural, very small city. They're taken from Jerusalem, and they're brought into Babylon, which is a city at that time, the largest city in the world, covered more than 2,000 acres, Uh, had, had the river running through the middle of it. Uh, had 50-some-odd temples, uh, libraries, uh, research centers, mathematical places. You know, they found cuneiform tablets from Babylon, and they have determined that, you know, the Pythagoras, remember him, the guy you swore you'd never remember ever again when you were in high school? They found out Pythagoras didn't, didn't, uh, he didn't come up with algebra. Guess who did? Babylonians did. In fact, they did it better than him. We have based, ours is based on tens, theirs were based on 60, and it's far better. No fractions. Anyway, they found that out recently. They were actually smarter back then, if you really look carefully. People were far smarter. Without our technology, but still far smarter. 50-some-odd buildings, science, literature, astronomy, uh, all kinds of things. Uh, in the center of the city, or basically the center of the city, was what, what, was, a temp, what was a temple, uh, effectively a pyramid called a ziggurat, rose 300 feet above the skyline. 
these are, so, so you have country come to the city, first of all. It's a major cultural shock for these young men. Never seen anything like this. Never imagined that anything could be like this. Uh, one of the palaces in Babylon at the time that they were there was a palace called the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world listed by the Greeks. Uh, amazing places. So these young men, first of all, would be overwhelmed because of the culture. By the way, the imposing nature and impressive nature of the city represented possibly to them at least what seemed to be the fact that the God of Israel no longer was the chief God. Why? Why, if he was, was our city conquered? And why, if he was, was this pagan city so opulent and so powerful and so many things? And so all these things are coming against them. Of course, they were forced into this culture, forced immersion into the pagan culture, forced to learn new language, forced to learn new education, forced to learn new religions. Of course, their names are changed, forced to eat new food. Uh, by the way, this, this is the end of the story. You knew that, right? I mean, this is just the way the story ends is that these young men were absorbed in the paganism and they lost their way. Isn't that the way it reads? Daniel, it's just Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 through 7, and then, then it basically ends as a book that says, this is, why you sh this is what happens to young people when they get absorbed into culture, and this is how things happen, and this is how it happened. By the way, that is often the story, is it not? Isn't that right? Isn't that right? Not this time, but no. But that's often the story. We get sucked in. We get pulled in. We give up. We compromise. We turn into 007 Christians, you know. No one really knows that we're over here. No one knows we're a believer and a follower of God. Of course, that's not how these young men's story ends. Their story is only beginning here. And because of their attitude and because of the direction that they change and because of the, the place that they place themselves, it is not the way the story ends. These four young men, uh, um, including Daniel in particular, stayed true to the Lord and wound up influencing a pagan culture for the next 500 years by their influence. Where do you think the Magi came from, by the way? They came to see Jesus. Where did they get their Bible that told them there was going to be a star that comes up in the east and it was going to represent the Messiah? And this is 400 years after Daniel's been dead. Where did he get it from? These men had great influence. They changed their culture. They changed the very pagan culture uh, and led them in the direction of God. So how, how do we, before we look at them, how do we deal with our own culture and the, the fact that it's against us and, and really everything that we believe? I don't know if you've seen I don't know if I can recommend to you necessarily because I haven't seen it, but I, I know this scene from it. Uh, miniseries called The Band of Brothers. Band of Brothers is a sort of a fictitious story about some guys who banded together to fight in the Second World War against the Battle of the Bulge, breakout of the army, uh, German army, the last breakout of the German army against Allied forces. And in that, in that scene, in that series, is, is a leader by the name of Dick Winters, and he, with some men who gathered around him, the Band of Brothers, decided they were not going to retreat. They were going to stand against the advancing uh, German army, and, and this particular scene that I'm referencing is one where uh, they're just waiting, they're waiting for the Germans to come upon them, and they're being passed by different soldiers who are, who are retreating. And in particular, they're passed by one lieutenant who orders them to leave, and, and he, he said, uh, you boys, you guys are going to be surrounded very quickly. You're going to be surrounded by the enemy. And uh, Dave Winters, uh, Dick Winters, says to the lieutenant, he says, Lieutenant, uh, we are paratroopers. We're supposed to be surrounded, he said. And so that's the way it goes. Beautiful scene. But it, it, it speaks loudly, I think, very much to our situation as Christians. Ladies and gentlemen, we are Christians. 
We are supposed to be surrounded. Where did you get the idea that you were not supposed to be surrounded? What makes you think this is your home? This is not your home. Heaven's your home. This is enemy territory. You have been parachuted in behind the lines. So wringing your hands and getting upset about the fact that you're surrounded by the enemy, (laughs) have you forgotten what you're about here? Have we forgotten what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be surrounded. That's, That's the proper process. That's the way things are supposed to be. God has placed us in enemy territory, not to be overrun, but to overcome and to influence for the sake of his name. And speaking of surrounded, Daniel and his friends were certainly in that situation. Uh, No family, uh, no place of worship, no friends, no support system. And did I mention teenagers? Most likely. 17, 18, maybe even younger than that. Teenagers, like I said, this should be the end of the story. It is often the end of the story. People get put under too much influence, too much pressure, too much peer pressure, too much issues, and, 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 and then, then we know nothing else about them because God doesn't work powerfully on their behalf because they don't stand up and they capitulate and they, they give in, and uh, you certainly would have expected that, no offense to any teenager here, from a group of teenage boys. You certainly would have expected that, but that is, of course, not how the story ends. So what did Daniel and his three friends do to overcome their situation and influence their new culture towards God? Well, I want us to consider those things. We're going to do it this morning and some, some uh, next Sunday, but I want us to con- we're just going to consider two things. And really want to harp on the first one because I think it's the most important one. It's really, for me at least, it is the thing that sets me right. Sort of like I got my compass bearings once I got this one, and then the rest of them kind of make sense after that. They won't make sense unless we've got this one first. The first thing that they did, and the first thing that we need to do, is that they recognized, they recognized that where they are and the situation they were in was due to the sovereignty of God. In other words, they were there because, because God had placed them there. They recognized, everybody listen to me, that God was in control. I know you look at your culture, you look at the situation, and you think, where is God in all this? God has never been anything other than in control. We talked about it last Sunday night. God rules the universe with his feet propped up. He's in control. He's in control. Now, don't blame him for the sin and the corruption and all the kind of things, but don't think for a second that he's off his throne in any way. God is in control. He is sovereign over the universe. He's sovereign over the cultures of men. The directions that we go are not out of his control. They're completely within his control. And until we have that mindset, we will not correctly deal with the world that we're living in for a number of reasons. Uh, Do you recognize that? He's he's already told us in the scriptures that things are not going to get better that they're going to get worse. He's already told us in the scriptures that we're going to be surrounded. So why now that things have gone downhill, like he said, and that we're surrounded, like he said, do we sit back and say, I don't know where God is in all this? When it's going just like he said. We should, why, why are we thinking, or why would we think, and maybe it's just me, maybe it's not you, that there's a part of me in, inside of the back of my head that says, maybe, God's, maybe this isn't God's will. No, it's not God's will. Sin is never God's will. Evil paganism is never God's will. But it is going the way God said it would go. God is 100% in control. So we need to draw some very specific conclusions based upon that. And we have to recognize that our circumstances have been orchestrated by God. Why were Daniel and his friends in the middle of Babylon? Because his culture had sinned. 
His culture had fallen apart. His culture had fallen into paganism, and God rightly judged them. And so a part of that process is that these young men, who, by the way, were faithful to God as demonstrated by their lives, nonetheless, they were the minority in their culture, and they were suffering because of the decisions that their, their culture was making. We live in the same place today. We throw our hands up and say, these ignorant people, they just only knew. These, these, um, these I want to call them idiots so bad, I'm trying not to say that word. <laughs> these misinformed malcontents. <laughs> that I want to kill sometimes. Guys that are influencing our culture and they are the louder voice it seems and they are that way because God is allowing them to be that way because God is in control. I mean you think about it. If you were God would, 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 would you have allowed our culture to spiral out way before this? I would have. We'd have been gone if it had been me. But God in his graciousness has allowed us to be where the place is. I'm not saying God can't swoop in and God can't change and God can't revive it. Nonetheless, I mean, we can't, if, if, what part in you would say, we don't deserve this? No, we deserve this. And we're sitting here mad because we're in the midst of the culture trying to live differently and trying to honor God with our lives. And you, believe me, you've got a friend in Daniel and his friends. But they didn't sit around and get mad. They decided God's in control, which indeed he is. What part can I play now to make a difference so that, I, at least for my sake, I can say I did it right? What part can I play? God, listen, has sovereignly placed us where we can make a difference. So we have a choice. If someone says you can curse the darkness, or you can what? You can light a candle. And a lot of us are cursing the darkness. They ain't doing a bit of good. You're not changing nothing. And if anything, you're enforcing what they say about us. And what they say about Christianity. You're just simply enforcing it. Instead of cursing the darkness, light a candle. Daniel and his friends recognized that God has sovereignly placed them where he were. Like they couldn't change circumstances, and they didn't like their circumstances necessarily. But it, it just is what it is. That was their conclusion. So what can we be for the time God has given to us here? And it may be only a week, and it may be only a month, and little do they know it was going to be the next 40, 50, 60 years. Daniel is a 90-year-old man before he retires from, from the administrations of Babylon and, and Persia, which follow, follow Babylon and kingdom. So, but despite all the power and opulence of Babylon, Daniel and his friends did not doubt that God was in control. So that is our first thing. Do not doubt God is in control. I don't care what it looks like. God is in control. And this is demonstrated ultimately by their faithfulness, at least the beginning here. Their faithfulness to God and refusing to submit to the dietary codes of the king, which, by the way, most likely, if it hadn't gone the way it goes, again, that would have been the end of the story. <laughs> you know, off with your heads. We've got tons of young men that we can get. See you later. And, and they would have died martyrs. You know, they would have died doing the right thing. And, and, and maybe that is the story in some cases. I mean, the way it worked out for Daniel and his friends is not the, the way it works out every single time. Some people pay for their witness to God with their lives, and, and you need to go into it with, uh, my, my opinion, my wife and I's conclusion when we make decisions is we need to consider the worst case scenario first. How could this go super bad, and then, then you, and be ready for that, and then everything else becomes gravy after that. How could it go super bad, and that's probably what they're considering here. You know, this may be the end of our lives, but we're going to stand up and do the right thing. So number one, they understood that God was in control, which brought them to the second conclusion, which is, by the way, it comes in this order. Number two, they resolved to obey God 
no matter what. If God is in control, then he's in control, and he needs to be in control of you. And it may be that you get another day, another month, another year, or 50 years, whatever the circumstances God puts you in. But whatever he gives to you, you need to take it. But you need to obey him no matter what. Look at verse 8. It says, Now Daniel made up his mind, apparently along with his friends, that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. And of course, along with him, his friends. I want you to understand that this was a moral decision, not a dietary decision. It's not just a young Jewish man saying, that's not kosher food. I didn't have a priest who waved his hands over it or whatever. No, this is a moral decision. And by the way, in due respect to all the vegetarians we may have here, it's, it, this is not a plus or a minus for the, for the veggies out there. Not to say that you know, being a vegetarian is a bad thing necessarily. This is not a polemic in the Bible for vegetarianism or against eating meat. Daniel and his friends were certainly meat eaters. The decision they make is not a dietary one. It's a moral decision. The reason why I say that is because there was the best wines and the best meats always in this culture first were sacrificed to pagan gods. There would not have been a wine or a meat that passed through the lips of the king. By the way, where did the food come from? From the king, right? comes from his table. So the best stuff, there would not have been a wine or a food or especially a meat that passed through the mouth, the lips of the king that had not first been sacrificed probably to multiple gods. What they would do is take the best cattle, the best wines, and they would, they would first kill the cows, pour the blood out in sacrifice to this pagan god or gods. They would, they would offer a portion of the animal, usually the entrails, to, to the god, and they would take the meat and they would sell it in the market for very high prices, or that is, whatever the king didn't want himself. Same with the wine. They would pour out a portion of it, then they would take the wine to the king, or they would sell it at very high prices in the market. 100%, though, of the good stuff in all levels came first in front of their pagan gods. So the reason why Daniel and his friends are not going to touch this stuff is because of where it came from. Not because they're necessarily vegetarians. This will begin a moral decision, not a dietary decision. That's why Daniel's friends, they're, not, they're going veggie on this, not necessarily because they thought vegetables were all the rage per se, but because they weren't going to jeopardize their relationship with God for anything. I'm a meat eater. I love meat. I don't have to have vegetables. I, a Coke and a good steak is all that I need. <laughs> but, and, and, and these young men are pretty much that way. Remember, they're, they're, of, they're of royal heritage. They were of the upper crust of Jerusalem. They ate the best stuff. They were used to getting really good cuts of meat and really nice stuff on a regular basis. So now they're having to sacrifice for the stuff that they like for the sake of their relationship with God. Because that's more important than anything else. So their position, even if it, even if it meant they're, well, at least, at the very least, they're not going to get to eat what they want. At the very most, off with your heads. So either way, they're going to pay for this. But they're not going to jeopardize their relationship with God. And that's the first place we need to get to, guys. First of all, God's in control. Number two, I'm not going to jeopardize my relationship with him. I'm not going to choose my culture or the pressures of my culture or the opinions of my culture over my God, not for anything. You want to change your culture and not be influenced by your culture? You have to come to these conclusions. And if you give in on these conclusions, like I said, that's the end of the story for you. 
We will not know another thing about you because you will be a 007 Christian for the rest of your life. You will fly under the radar and you will end your life without any influence because instead you've been the, the one who's been influenced. So that's why they do this. And, and by the way, just, just in case you're going to take the Daniel diet, it shouldn't have worked. Tell me what diet besides going across the river and drinking a quart of the first, from the first faucet that you get over there. What diet makes a big change in 10 days? There's not one. Look, look at verse 12. And don't do that diet, by the way. The Mexican diet, you will fit in that dress. You just won't be able to wear that dress. Just in case you don't know, ask somebody. Please test your servants. Here's a request. For 10 days, and that's pretty bold. I mean, there's not a diet that makes, makes a difference in 10 days. So, so understand, this diet shouldn't have worked. He's believing in a miracle of God. Let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink, and then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants accordingly. Set us over here and set them over there and observe us after 10 days. Like I said, it shouldn't have worked. So he listened to them in the matter, tested them for 10 days, and at the end of 10 days, their appearance seemed better than they were fatter than all the youths had been eating. Like I said, they shouldn't have worked. Tell me you're going to go on vegetables. Tell me I'm going to go on vegetables and not eat any meat for the next 10 days, and I promise you, I will not be fatter. I will be skinnier. It shouldn't have worked. This is a miracle of God. God worked a miracle on behalf of these young men who stuck their necks out for him. And by the way, you're never going to see God work if you're not sticking your neck out. You want God to first give you the miracle and then I'll be obedient to him. Well, no. That's not how it works. You're obedient to him and then God comes through on behalf of those who strongly stand up for him. That's exactly what takes place for these young men. So the overseer, verse 16, continued to withhold their choice food. He noticed how great they looked and the wine from their drink and he kept giving them vegetables. It wasn't just a 10-day miracle. It was a permanent miracle. And God worked it on behalf of these young men. So here's the question. Do you want to change your world? Refuse to compromise. Refuse to compromise. Now make sure the stuff you're compromising and not compromising is not just some particular opinion that you hold as opposed to God's opinion. I mean stuff that you can absolutely say, the scripture says thus and such, and so that's where I stand. Not just because, oh, well, I have these certain proclivities that I prefer and don't prefer, and then I expect God to come through on behalf of my proclivities. No, he doesn't have to do that. But he does with his word. He does, have to, he does promise us. We've been talking on Sunday nights about the promises of God. Promises of God only mean something because God doesn't fail to keep them. He will come through because of his promises, because of the things he's promised to us. Refuse to compromise in your obedience to God, and you will change your world. And maybe, listen, the reason, thinking about this this week as I was formulating this sermon, maybe the reason we don't see God moving powerfully and working miracles on our behalf is because we always, we never give him a shot. I, I, I'm compromising before he ever gets a chance to show me how strong he can be on my behalf. I was going to do something for you, Bill, but, but you're such a knucklehead because you just gave in instead of standing up. We're not seeing him work. Where's the God of the Bible who used to work miracles? Or where are the people of the Bible who served him without compromise? Show me those people and I'll show you the God of the Bible. He'll come through. Oh, oh, oh I can't do that. I, I might get fired. Okay. 
So, so God, first of all, what you're saying to me is, is that God's incapable of keeping your job. Is that what you're saying? I don't know. Let's just analyze it. Or, or, or maybe you do get fired. God's incapable of giving you a better job. I mean, I don't know what your situation is, but you need to analyze the reasons why you're compromising. Because God's not capable of helping you out. Is that why? He's not able to come through. He fails. He fails this all the time. Is that what it is? Oh, um, well, I can't do that. I can't be that because I might lose friends. So God's not capable of giving you the right friends, or maybe the friends you have aren't the right friends. God, God's not capable of enabling you to stand all by, maybe, maybe you get no friends. Maybe God's able to, to, to put you in a place where I'm, I'm okay by myself. Again, we, we, we don't see God work on powerfully on our behalf because we've compromised, leaving him completely out of the picture. Well, I, I can't because, because it'll put me in a tight situation, so God's unable to get you out of a tight situation. That you're God, because I can tell you my God's capable of that. Maybe you need to find a different God. Because my God's certainly capable of that. He's capable of handling these circumstances and situations, but we compromise before God ever gets a chance to show himself powerful on our behalf. If these young men had done that, we would not know. Like I said, the story would have ended at verse 7. It would have been over. That's the way it always goes. Young men get put under pressure. And by the way, we would have all forgiven them for it, right? Because we've all done the same things, haven't we? Right? I'm not going to sit and judge on them because, man, I'm going to first judge myself for compromises I've made in my own life. The reason why Daniel and his friends are standouts is because they are not like us. We need to be like them. We need to act and think like them. They made a difference because, like I said, they're not like us. We need to learn from these Jewish teenagers who stood up for God. And Well, here's the remedy. When you stand up for God, he'll stand up for you. That's the lesson of Daniel. The lesson of Daniel is the sovereignty of God. God's bigger than the king's. He's bigger than dreams. He's bigger than fiery furnaces. He's bigger than lion's dens. He's bigger than all this kind of stuff. And, and he's able to strongly support those who are completely his. That's the message of Daniel. That's the whole book. The miracle of the vegetables, the miracle of the interpreted dreams, the miracle of the fiery furnace, the lion's den, all because these young men were willing to stand. And notice the result, by the way, verse 19. And the king talked with them. This is after the end of three years. They've been eating nothing but vegetables. No red lobster, no, you know, Texas Roadhouse. Man, feeling ill on their behalf. Nothing but vegetables and water. And notice, and again, don't try the diet and expect this is going to happen. It's a miracle of God that makes it, okay? The king talked with them, and out of them all, so he got hundreds of young men in countries that he's conquered in very rapid succession. He's conquered everything from Babylon all the way to Egypt. Massive amount of territory. He's got very educated, very high-bred young men in his court, among them Daniel and his friends. But he found not one like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, or Azariah, so they entered the king's personal service. So they stick their neck out. They jeopardized their neck, at the very least their job. Certainly their situation, there's no one there to help them. Mama's not there to come help them. There's no church to go fall back on so that they can be supported. They have nothing. But they stand it for God, recognize that he's control, stand it for God, and what does God do? He promotes them because God, because God can do that. That's why. Because God can do that. 
And like I said, he doesn't have to do that. It doesn't have to come out like this in spades. But either way, believe me, when you step out of this life, you want to step out of it saying, I did the right thing. And that's really the question we need to ask ourselves in conclusion this morning. What do we really want to do? I mean, what's our real priority? You want to step out of this life? Like I said, you can be a 007 Christian. You can fly under the radar. But here's something you need to know. Part of your future, your forever future, is the knowledge that that's the way you live when the chance you have to do it right down here. Heaven's not going to be a place of oblivion. It's going to, is heaven going to be a place of where I know more or where I know less? Think it's okay, I can live like a 007 Christian, just fly under the radar and compromise my life, even though I'm just still going to go to heaven, that's the thing I really want to do, and it won't matter when I get there because I'll forget all this down here. It doesn't ever say that in the Bible. We have concepts of heaven that are not true. It says in the Bible that at the end of this life, you're going to be rewarded based upon how you lived or did not for Christ. Heaven's not a reward. That's a reward for Jesus. He earned that for himself. You're going to be in heaven because he wants you to be there. That's his reward. Your reward is going to be, now what did you do as a person who's placed down? You parachuted in behind the enemy lines, and you had a certain time to do it right or do it wrong. But for eternity, you're going to be, if you will, labeled with a label that says, this is how she did it. This is what he did. This is where he stood. And like I said, that might mess with your heaven, but I... Um, your perception of heaven, but I would encourage you to read the Bible and see what it says about heaven. Jesus had a ton to say about heaven and rewards. They're going to matter to you. It's going to matter. I'm just saying you'd be wise for it to matter now and continue to matter until God sees fit to end whatever it is that he has for you to do. So I want us to pray together, think about the things that, that we've learned this morning. God is in control, and because he's in control, we cannot compromise ourselves. We cannot compromise. He doesn't guarantee to promote us in every way, but we can be certain that we're in the place where we are because he sovereignly placed us here to make an influence. And maybe it's just for tomorrow, and maybe it's just for a month, and maybe it's just for a couple of years, and maybe it's for the rest of our lives, however long God gives us that he would be glorified. Lord, we're asking that. We ask you, God, that you would give us the resolve of soldiers. Uh, this isn't heaven. This isn't a, a place of relaxation. This isn't a place where we get everything we want. This isn't a place where things just simply go our way and we get no pressures. We're being surrounded more and more by a culture that is not like us, doesn't like us, doesn't want us. And we have so much to learn from these young men. Lord, I pray that as we enter into this book of Daniel, Lord, that you would teach us God, that we would grow, that we would understand you're in charge, we would understand how important it is to not compromise our lives. We would, we would wait happily waiting for you to come through on our behalf because you're a God who backs up those who stand up for him. Thank you so much, Lord, for speaking to us. We're anxious to hear all the things you're going to say in this book. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for visiting. Find us at www.islandbaptist.org.